Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I am Julia Claire. Julia, I forgot to wear my tuxedo. I know. For this podcast. That's really embarrassing and I do feel disrespected that you are not wearing a full tux. (laughs) So we are, of course, referring to uh, King Jordan Peterson's amazing outfit when he went on the joe rogan experience and they went for four and a half hours it's a four and a half it's going to be a four and a half hour podcast with joe rogan and jordan peterson (laughs) so i'm in montana and i was in the car all day yesterday with these really nice comedians from here and uh they were we, were, we were talking about Joe Rogan in the car and the whole Jordan Peterson interview. And then I there were some different comedians at the show. And I started the, the same conversation again. And I was just telling them all about the Jordan Peterson tuxedo thing. And then the comedians from the car walked in. And I was kind of embarrassed that they saw that I was like doing the whole thing again. You know, that I was like, <laughs> like wow, you've devoted four hours today you've done your own four hour interview today about jordan peterson Mm -hmm. on the joe rogan experience it's important it's very important um yeah oh god i this is one of the i mean obviously i'm not gonna like i've seen a few of the i've seen and listened to a few of the clips going around but one of the things that frustrates me so much about people who are like genuinely fan like insane fans of the Joe Rogan experience is they're like he has people from uh with different perspectives than him on the show all the time and it's simply not true because he will just like I've you know we've all seen people who try to like present him with facts and things like that and he's just like I don't think that's true no, I think that's wrong. Joe Rogan said that? He doesn't think it's yeah. true? Yeah. Like, no, no, no. Like, when, when someone comes on and, like, uh, contradicts him, he, like, even if it, even if they cite evidence, he's like, I don't think that's true. That's wrong. And then he, they're never invited back again. And then <laughs> he has a four and a half hour podcast with Jordan Peterson, who is very much his... Uh, one of his compatriots ideologically so here's what i've been wondering about all right like there's obviously a market for this like contrarian just asking questions type of thing with a right-wing bent and to some extent there's a lesser market for like being the guy that opposes these guys you know Mm -hmm. uh but is there a market for just being a nice lady that wishes this all wasn't happening. You know what? I <laughs> can think you make, can you make money that way? <laughs> yeah. I think that you and I have proven that there is not a market for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yesterday I had a really more rewarding experience with the podcast, which is that some fans came to my show here in Billings, Montana. Oh, really? F- Reply Guys fans. Yeah. And they really wanted to see a picture of Little Pearl, who, who they had been a fan of 
and I, I got to show them pictures of Little Pearl. And uh, that was like really rewarding for me to just get to, you know, share my love of Little Pearl with with other people that I didn't know. Because Little Pearl is very cute. Yeah. She is so cute. Pearl <laughs> and Albert, incredibly and cute. And June. Yeah. And little June, of course. I mean, she's yeah, June June was being mean to me today, but I, I I was I was gone I was gone for the night, so I understand. She's she's lashing out. She's you know, she misses me. I get it. Um Dude, when I go on a trip, Albert becomes extra clingy when he gets back and he's doing this thing where when I take a bath, he tries to jump in the fucking bathtub with me. It's really messed up. He like he launched himself into the bathtub the other day and I caught him to prevent him from getting in the water man because I love he that. would actually fucking hate getting in the water and I would get all scratched up and also you know he's a baby it's not appropriate for him to be you know seeing nudity or whatever yeah. at all you know so uh yeah but this this clinginess has to end yeah it must cease <laughs> yeah um but so you know yeah I don't know I mean like so Neil Young did like, you know, he he announced that he wanted all of his music re- removed from Spotify if Joe Rogan was still going to be on there. I think particularly because of the like vaccine skepticism. I don't really know what to do about this because it's like, you know, on the, I mean, I think the, the U.S. Surgeon General said that like, you know, Spotify should even considering like consider censoring Joe Rogan. I don't really see that having like the intended effect whatsoever. Like, I think that a lot of the narrative that, you know, these vaccine skeptics are putting forward is like, you know, Oh, we're not allowed to talk about this. And like, I don't know. Normally I'm not someone that is like, you know, against, I mean, like, I don't think that all ideas need to be, like, debated in the public sphere. Like, I don't think that we need to, you know, debate Nazis or whatever. But with this vaccine stuff in particular, I I don't know if, like, pushing the skeptics, like, if making it seem like, oh, it's dangerous, they don't want you to know this, it, it feels like it's just fueling it to me. Well, okay, so I think that there are a few options here, and I've been thinking about this a lot, too, because... I mean, I'm not like a free speech absolutist, honestly. I and but neither is like the Bill of Rights. It's you know we acknowledge that there are some forms of free speech that are not protected. Yeah, like hate speech or incitement, like yelling fire in a crowded theater is the the most often cited example. I mean, what is Joe Rogan talking about? ivermectin to 11 million listeners per episode if not yelling fire in a crowded theater (laughs) like i but i mean i like look i don't think i don't know in my perfect world joe rogan would be uh banned from the airwaves certainly but i think that at the very least because spotify pays him directly it's not just like spotify hosts his show on uh on their network it's like they he he is paid by spotify i do think that there is some i think there should at least be some sort of pre-roll to every episode or some sort of footnote when he goes off uh, when he goes off about this stuff saying that it has not been 
that either that there's direct evidence to the contrary or it's not been proven or something like that. I just think that his audience is too big. He has the most listened to podcast in history. <laughs> um, I think that there there is some, I mean, and obviously Spotify is like they are in it for the profits. They always have been. They certainly don't pay, you know, uh, they don't pay people who upload their music or their stand-up albums or whatever. Any creators don't make money from from Spotify. That's been well-known for a long time. But I don't know. I do think that they have they do have some sort of responsibility. And there was also like a I think I, I might have talked about this on a previous episode, but there was a um like an open letter written to Spotify by like over 200 um epidemiologists yeah um about the misinformation that he's spreading because he does have a lot of influence he is like the mainstream media now yeah I mean that's why I was a fan of it when our 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 man Bernard only guy I've ever loved Truly, um, when he, uh, you know, went on Joe Rogan, I thought, you know, that was a good idea because it is, I don't know, it is one of the biggest media sources in the entire country. I'm just, I mean, I just don't really know, like, what to do. And on one hand, I feel like I I am so against um, those liberals who are like, we need to take health insurance away from people who are not vaccinated. Oh, or fuck that, yeah. Like, just, no. you know, these these methods of, like, you know, retaliating against unvaccinated people, you know, through the medical system is, like, to me, that's very disgusting. And it's very, like, anti-leftist. You know, I am... Um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know because... I, you know, I think that it is easy to get, like, sort of inured to, like, how many deaths there are. Like, even if it's something that you really, truly care about, um, you know, it's easy to be like, well, I mean, people are not vaccinated. Ultimately, it's like, it's their choice. But it's also, it is very also sad. I mean, all of those people who are not vaccinated, they have friends and family I love them. And, you know, every single one of those like 800,000 plus people is, you know, a whole person with a whole life. And I mean, it's this, this not, not vaccinating thing. It it is costing people their lives, even if it is, you know, ultimately a matter of, of individual decision, you know, plus like all the points that have been made by everyone else about the, the spread of COVID, of course, you know? Yeah. I just think that, Some of the takes that I saw floating around from Joe Rogan stands about Neil Young, like Neil Young did not think that Spotify was going to choose him over Joe Rogan. Yeah, he didn't. He yeah. knows that they're like <laughs> he did. He's standing on principle. He's just like, I yeah. don't want my music on the same platform that proliferates this lunacy. Yeah, it's like when I have said to various boyfriends, it's me or the Coke, you know? I knew it wasn't going to be me. <laughs> but it was worth a shot. It's worth a shot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just to make a principled stand. I don't know, man. Oh, it's really... 
Yeah. It's really, it's, I, I, I do not, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, by what's going to happen. I mean, like what, if anything, would convince people to get vaccinated who are, who are not vaccinated. And it is, it, you know, it's super, super, super unfortunate that this became such a highly politicized issue. Um, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people have made the point that like, by the time somebody like Joe Rogan is, you know, influencing people strongly on this, like you've already failed. Like there already is like, you know, there's such, there's so many systemic failures of people just not, you know, not trusting what the CDC says because, Uh you know, it is an institution that is obviously so, you know, beholden to capital. Um, Uh There's already like so many people that have had such terrible experiences with medical system, either by not being able to get care or not having a doctor at all, or, you know, just having these fucking 10 minute appointments where, you know, their concerns are not really taken seriously. They're just in and out because that's all the insurance covers. I mean, it's, it's fucked up. I don't know. You know, There is some um, good news in the kind of uh, in in the the labor movement. Um, Kroger, after a ten day strike um, in uh, Colorado, has I think reached a tentative agreement uh, where pay is going to be increased. There's some more um, more Starbucks stores that are potentially unionizing. Um, I mean, this is you know I do think that. I do think that there is some promise um, in. Oh yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, there's a lot to be excited about in the labor space, certainly. Um, and I think Starbucks, obviously, is such an enormous corporation. Yeah, like, that really that really excites me, um, and. It gives me like a shred of hope for corporation, like behemoth corporations like Amazon, to, um, to maybe see unionization in the la- in the next hopefully like five ten years. But I don't know. Um, also, yeah, Kroger. I was doing a little reading about Kroger. And their, em, many of their employees, many Kroger employees are like at or below the poverty line. Yeah, it's fucked up. It's um, and their, fucked up. their CEO makes $22 million a year and got a $6.4 million raise last year. Oh, my God. Um, while, they're, while they're arguing for like... Uh, you know, it's well, tiny, tiny raises. That's, of- that's always the way. I, you know... Uh, I used to work at, I can say this now because I, but I used to work at an, uh, an Ivy league school here in New York city. Hmm. And, um, with a, with a $10 billion endowment and I was in the union, I was in the local 2110 union and we were constantly fighting for scraps. And honestly, like everyone, the whole university over was like fighting for, for better pay Um, but the only people who got paid 
sufficiently and overabundantly in in that case were the people at the very very top and um yeah it's really fucked up it's fucked up when clearly a a business or an institution that has so much money and their profits are so large that they could easily easily pay their workers a living wage choose not to for greed yeah, it's, um, I don't know. Uh, it, it is, it is very, I mean, none of this is like, is, is new stuff, but I mean, it, it, these corporations are, are really, 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 uh, <laughs> pushing their luck, I would say, you know, yeah. I mean, um, I think especially in the pandemic, like, people just have realized like how completely expendable um that these companies see them as you know just like it literally do not care if they yeah. live or die you know and um i don't know i mean I'm, I'm hoping that people continue to organize and you know start getting you know seeing some real like material benefits pay increases yeah. and I don't know. And, and quitting these, these fucking horrible jobs for at least stuff that's, you know, potentially marginally better paid in some cases because, yep. yeah. Um, so I am very excited this week about our interview. I talked to Rachel Krantz, who was the author of the book Open, and we talked about um, non-monogamy in from the perspective of like a lot about consent and what consent means and, you know, kind of, I think that this book was really interesting because it's in addition to being like very, you know, pro non-monogamy, she's also like writing about it in a really honest way. Like the experience of being a woman that is simultaneously seeking for her own reasons, sexual liberation and also being like pressured into it by men, which I yeah. do feel like is, the, is which I do feel like is, is the sort of like, you know, <laughs> that's an experience a lot of women can relate to monogamous, mm -hmm. non-monogamous, slutty as I am, where it's like, on the one hand, you're like, well, I want, you know, I want certain things. I want a certain sexual freedom for myself. And on the other hand, like, you can't really escape like, patriarchal structures and i thought that the way that she talks about this was really interesting and i think that people will enjoy this interview great and yeah some 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 balance for uh yeah this is our this is like when we're we were talking about carlson and this is us having uh, glenn greenwald on that's yeah. right yeah <laughs> that's right okay thank you so much bye Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. This week I am talking to someone whose book I really enjoyed. It is called Open, an uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy. Welcome to the show, Rachel Krantz. Hey, thanks so much for having me. We are so excited to have you on the show. I was going to say what this book is about, but you know what? Why don't you give a little summary of what this book is? Uh, well, it's the story of my first open relationship, um, which was also my first dom-sub relationship, and in the end, also my first relationship 
plagued with emotional abuse. So it was a lot of firsts, and it's kind of about my journey um, through four years uh, in my late 20s, early 30s, uh, exploring different forms of non-monogamy and trying to figure out what um, sexual and romantic liberation might look like for me um, and on the journey coming into my queerness, coming into my kinks, um, in some ways feeling very liberated and in others getting increasingly bogged down in the sort of primary dynamic that wasn't healthy. So it's about that whole journey. I could definitely relate to many aspects of your book. Like on the one hand, I lived in the Bay Area for a long time and I was very involved in you know, sex positive scenes there and also lived in LA and Oakland. So like geographically, I I felt like I could (laughs) just picture a lot of the places that you were describing and had lived in. But I also could relate to a lot of the more emotional aspects of this book, which is like, there's this way that you describe the experience of being a woman and sort of on a very... (laughs) important and like internally motivated search for your own sexual liberation while also simultaneously being pressured and coerced into your sexual liberation by men. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I find that a lot of people when talking about this, these kinds of topics want to sort of settle on, okay, it's one or the other. And I find that, you know, the truth for most women is that it's both. Definitely. And I I don't think, you know, doing something because it pleases someone else is inherently wrong. It's maybe if you're not getting anything out of that and you're solely doing it to please the other person and that's not even your kink and you feel coerced, that's when it's more of a problem. But I think, you know, desire is often... Um, you know, studies show, especially for women, tends to be about imagining the other person desiring you. So it makes sense that we would want our partners to get off on what we're doing because it's a kind of feedback loop of um, their desire feeding our desire. So I don't think I think it's always both and um, and it's it's confusing and it's something that, yeah, when you set out to kind of live a sexually or romantically liberated life, whatever that means, you're bound to come up against these questions, even if you're um, not a woman in relationships with men. I feel like in the groups of people that I spend my time with, which is a lot of like leftists and comedians and, you know, people who are just generally like very sort of politically and sexually progressive, like sometimes it can feel like there's a lot of pressure to not be too monogamous or to not be too vanilla. And it's easy to forget that in the broader culture, there's actually a ton of pressure, especially for women to be, you know, very, um, monogamous and very like, you know, quote unquote pure. And one thing I thought that your book did a really excellent job of is capturing this sort of pressure from like both angles. Like as a woman, when it comes to sexuality, you just kind of can't win. Yeah. I've been hearing that and it's understandable that there's this kind of resentment of like, remember when the whole 
cool girl think pieces were going around in, in like 20, I don't know, 16 or something like that. And sort of the pressure to be this, uh, you know, threesome having, hot dog eating, tailgating, uh, manic pixie, whatever dream girl. And the idea that it, you know, that non-monogamy or being, being down for, uh, any kind of sexual adventure is now another expectation that women are potentially feeling pressure to fulfill is very unfortunate. And I can understand why there would be resentment around that. Um, I also think that there's still a lot of stigma and we're far from that being the, the standard for most people. But I have heard among, yeah, sometimes like younger people, um, in college age right now that there is some, because it's getting more mainstream, at least among certain groups that they feel a certain pressure to do that. And, and Kathy Labriola, who's my counselor, um, and wrote the book Love and Abundance and is a polyamorous expert and she's all throughout the book. Um, you know, she kind of says, well, why should we allow, in this case, men to use non-monogamy as another way to like reinforce the types of patterns we're trying to reject. This should be about our sexual freedom and liberation. And, and so if non-monogamy is something you're feeling coerced to do or like you have to be down for, but you don't really want, it's pretty, uh, that's pretty much against the whole point of it, you know? But I think that I have met plenty of people who are doing it for, um, far different reasons that are coming much more from a desire to um, not feel like anyone owns their body, to have a different script than the one they've been given, to not have to squelch their desires. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things at play at once. Well, yeah, there can be pressure from people around you and there can be pressure from society at large. I guess to me as a woman, when it comes to the amount of sex that you're having or the amount of partners that you're having, there's like kind of no way to Mm -hmm. get it right. Like there's no like, oh, okay, eight Mm -hmm. is the right amount. It's just too many or too little, but someone's always mad about it. Right. Right. Totally. And I mean, when I was like going on this journey at a certain point for the first time in my you know, sexual adult life, I stopped counting um, because I was having more casual experiences. And I was just like, why am I counting this on my hands as if it's like points that are going to be tallied against me at some point? And I, I made a conscious decision to stop counting. And then it was, I hadn't thought about it. And it was interesting, you know, just a few months ago, I had a new partner and, uh, you know, we've been friends a long time and, he knows about my journey and has read early drafts of the book. And he, he wanted to know what the number was. And I was like, I don't know. And he was like, come on, just give me a ballpark. And I was like, I don't know. And it kind of annoyed me that he was even asking. But then I found myself giving, giving him a fucking number. And then I thought about that afterwards. And I was like, okay. You know, he, he was, I think afterwards he said, oh, it's not as much as I thought. Or, but <laughs> I was just like, why am I even playing this game still? You know, it's so hard to escape. Um, and you don't even really know what standards are being judged or not judged by. Often. I think I know, like, 
a ballpark, but I don't think I know the exact number though. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just like, I think so much of a woman's worth is kind of seen as like how you're being desired. What are you doing with that desire, that attention that is given to you or thrown at you or levied at you? There's just so many like toxic ideas of sex. Like women are the gatekeepers of sex and it is our job to withhold it and it is also our job to put out and it all says a lot about our self-worth and yeah it is and and you know like that's what i kind of lay out early in the book is the central premise of sex at dawn which is a really popular uh counter argument to the standard evolutionary narrative which we're all familiar with of like you just said, that women are the gatekeepers of sex while men want to spread their seed and we're trying to lock them down so that they protect us when they impregnate us. But Sex at Dawn argues that it was only with the agricultural revolution and its attendant concern for property that women's bodies became more wealth to manage. Um, and there you see more traditional ideas of monogamy and and marriage beginning to emerge as a result, whereas before they argue that the evidence actually points to um, people being much more communal, less concerned with property, much less monogamous. I mean, I'm not saying all the women were sexually liberated before the agricultural revolution. Unfortunately, I doubt it. But I do think, you know, there's over... 300 species of primates, none of them that also live in complex social groups with multiple adult males like us are monogamous, um, and hardly any animals are. You know, we tend to project monogamy onto birds that pair bond, but even those birds like swans and penguins are not sexually monogamous. So I think there's been a, a social structure that's emerged and then evolutionary theory that gained popularity in the 1800s that had a lot of confirmation bias to it that was created by, you know, Darwin and other white men who saw around them this system and then were looking for a way to explain why it made sense it happened. And it certainly seems like a, a plausible idea. And I'm sure like most things, there's a grain of truth to it. Of course, you know, women who are impregnated would probably want the father to stick around and provide, but it reinforces this very patriarchal idea that women are not only the gatekeepers of sex, but kind of, you know, sexually satiated by that one man when actually all the research that's been happening shows quite the contrary, that we seem to be more affected by lack of sexual novelty um, and, yeah, report more drops in desire after a long time living with someone or being with someone. So I think the narrative needs reexamination for sure. And, and part of the reason is, like you said, it's put us in this impossible spot. Um, and I don't think that's an accident. So a couple of things that you said. I think that narrative, that myth that women are not beings who desire and that, you know, men are the only ones who feel desire. It's easy to forget how pervasive that narrative was, at least for a time, you know, like um, Victorian through 
mid-century at least. I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, if you read Shakespeare and stuff, there's all these jokes about women being horny. <laughs> but I think this idea, like, you know, that a lot of people talk about in reference to that book, um, Sex at Dawn specifically, this idea that is like what's natural and that we should be taking our sexual uh, mores from like the natural world, you know, bonobos or whatever. I mean, to me, that idea kind of breaks down because there's a lot of things that are natural that we would absolutely not want to emulate. Like ideally, we want to have a a sex that is based in consent. And obviously, that's not something that animals are really, you know, able to practice. Right. I don't actually think we need any kind of primate to like, you know, let us know that women feel desire because women are like, opening our mouths and saying, yeah, we feel desire. It's definitely easy to forget living in like Brooklyn or the Bay Area, like how recent it was that people really carried this idea that if you're in a committed monogamous relationship and you feel sexual desire for somebody that is not your partner, that that's like a sign that something is wrong in your relationship or that you should break up. Totally. And I mean, I think that, yeah, it's not a matter of should, but can, can we, if we want. And I think that, yeah, we are at a point at least in um, our culture or our subcultures where it's pretty accepted that women have sexual desire for sure. But I don't think it is that accepted that um, women should, you know, that it's okay if they have trouble with long-term monogamy, that that's uh, perfectly natural or normal, potentially. I mean, I think it's it's considered normal in the, I, the fact that 50% of marriages end in divorce. Women are more likely to cheat than ever, um, are cheating at a comparable rate to men. So, like, clearly they're coming up against the realities of these structures. But I do think that people who step outside of them and try a different way, it's still a lower number. It's, you know, 22% of people say they've uh, tried consensual non-monogamy at some point. So I I do think the point of bringing those things up is not to say, oh, you know, our ancestors did or primates do it, therefore we should do it too, but rather just to remind us we are animals. And when we try to totally disregard our animal nature there are consequences it doesn't mean we should always adhere to our basis animal instincts but in this case I think that there's a lot um, potentially to be gained for people from being a little less hard on themselves or feeling shame when they still have desire even though they get married and might be very happy with that person and they're feeling racked with guilt like What's wrong with me? What's wrong with the relationship? This isn't, I should just be happy. You know, I think that's still very much the standard narrative is like, when you find Prince Charming, you should, then it gets to stop. You know, there's kind of the expectation that you're going to go through this period of serial monogamy or even non-monogamy while you're dating. You might just call it dating, but there's this kind of overlap between people often, or there might be a lot that's not spoken about. But the expectation is still very much still that hopefully you're going to grow out of that, right? Oh, my God. I'm 100% in agreement with that. I mean, like, if you're a person that wants 
monogamous relationships. Why wouldn't you want to do that with someone else who also wants to do that? I think a lot of the conversations that I see, you know, online, around, about non-monogamy, monogamy can tend to be pretty reductive. And for me, what feels true is that we are all trying to balance these different desires. A desire for stability, for a sense of certainty, but also a desire for a sense of adventure and novelty and excitement. A desire to feel close to someone and intimate, but also a sense of newness and mystery. And some of these desires can't really be met at the same time because they exist in opposition, you know, like if you have a desire for a greater degree of uncertainty, then yeah, that's going to make it harder to meet your, also your desire for certainty. And we're all just trying to, you know, find the the balance of those things that works for for us and our, our personalities and our upbringing, our needs. And it can also change throughout our lives, uh, depending on, you know, what we're needing at a certain moment or in a certain relationship. And I mean, I know people that are in like long-term monogamous relationships that haven't had sex in a really long time because, you know, for just various reasons, they, you know, they have gotten kind of accustomed to each other in a certain way that is not like, you know, conducive to a lot of sexual excitement. And I also know people that are really struggling in, non-monogamous relationships with various emotions. I feel like a lot of the time you'll see people sort of present, you know, the type of relationship that they're in or that they value, you know, as, as being sort of like the, the way, the truth and the light. Like you'll see people being like, oh, you know, if when I'm in a monogamous relationship, I never feel desire for anyone else ever. Or, you know, I'm non-monogamous and actually, you know, we don't experience jealousy and, you know, there's just so much freedom. And, it, you know, it's just like... I think everyone's relationships, like any kind of relationship, it has a lot, there's a lot of downsides of of every sort of relationship that people aren't necessarily honest about. Right. And you have a lot of people leaving relationships that they might not leave otherwise just because they can't stand not being able to explore the new attraction or they start cheating and they have that new energy, but then they find several months later that it dies out and now they've you know, blown up their life. So, yeah, I think that's not to say that monogamy is a bad choice at all. I think it's a totally valid, good choice for many people. Um, but the point is that it should be a choice and a conversation rather than just kind of a standard default for everyone, I think. Yeah, I mean, if you are in a non-monogamous relationship or or even if if not, I mean, I guess I'm I'm practicing a form of um, non-monogamy in the sense that I am uh, I just hook up with people um, and casually date. But even if you're like um, single and sleeping around, people, you know, if you have a, if you have a problem with something, people will be like, mm, you know, did you ever think about how you should be uh, married already? And that can be really isolating, you know. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's part of why I wanted to tell the whole truth. And it's understandable that a lot of polyamorous people who are confident enough to be out about it when it's still so stigmatized are people who maybe have been practicing for longer, who are in healthy relationships, who feel like good advocates for just this even being a valid way of life. And when a group is 
marginalized, you see the same thing with the, you know, gay rights movement. Like, at first, it's just trying to have basic acceptance of, like, this should not make you go to hell. And, like, this is this is a valid way of being in relationship. But I felt like, you know, we're never going to gain more acceptance or uh, rights unless we're fully presenting the honest truth and and the honest truth of course is that it's going to be hard or it's going to go really wrong sometimes and um of course it is because look at how many stories are about monogamous relationships that have gone horribly wrong or become abusive anytime you have multiple people coming together there's going to be potential drama there's going to be potential beauty um, and with this especially, it's so emotionally challenging. You're marginalized and all the social pressures that comes from that can lead to further isolation um, when you're in abusive dynamics because you're maybe not out about it. You're feeling, if you're new to it, like, oh, this is just what being known on this is. I just need to heal my reaction to jealousy. It can get really confusing. And so as I was going through it, you know, feeling this, simultaneous pull between on the one hand I'm really pushing myself and growing in a direction that feels really interesting and kind of beneficial and very uncomfortable and I'm having all these new experiences that I've always wanted to have and on the other hand I was anxious all the time racked with jealousy feeling like my partner didn't really fundamentally respect me we weren't communicating and both those things can be true and I I looked a lot for you know basically a book like the one I ended up writing where someone was like talking about the real hot mess that can ensue without concluding, therefore it's evil. I felt like a lot of people or things that I read fell into one of two cancers, either like this is more evolved and it's wonderful and like I barely get jealousy or here's how you can barely have jealousy. Or it was like, I tried that. It went horribly wrong. It's not for me. Goodbye. And I just could tell as I was going through it, like, this is probably for me in some way. But something about the way I'm doing this with this person, especially, is it's really not working for me. And I think that that's probably the experience a lot of people have when they try um, non-monogamy for the first time, when they try, you know, kink for the first time, like, BDSM, Dom, sub relationships can get very confusing in that same way too. Um, and so I think it's important to just like talk about all the gray so that people who are in that situation don't feel further isolated and ashamed and like there's something, you know, wrong with them and they don't believe they don't belong in, in either camp. Yeah, I mean, and people can be making choices that have painful consequences sometimes, but, you know, are the the right choice for them, you know, like just to kind of fully take it out of the realm of like sex and relationships for a minute. Like I am a comedian that is by all objective measures, like a bad job. It's really insecure. The mm-hmm. pay is not very good. It's, you know, just in general just comes with like a lot mm-hmm. of downsides. And it's also what I love and what I want to be doing with my life because it's the right thing for me. And if I'm ever having, you know, a problem with like, you know, money or something, people, you know, especially earlier on would really jump to like, well, you know, have you ever thought about how you shouldn't be a comedian or or have you thought about doing something else with your life? And it's like, well, yeah, of course, 
I've thought about that. Like, do you really think that I, I haven't thought about that? I've considered my, my options, you know, really thoroughly and have decided, yeah, this is what I want to be doing. And I think if you're a woman, it, you know, if there's anything happening in your sex life that is, you know, bringing you any sort of pain whatsoever, people yeah, will really like that. immediately yeah. jump to, right. well, then you shouldn't be doing this. Totally. People have trouble finding therapists. Like even for me as someone with privilege who was living in liberal areas and at that time had good health insurance. I don't anymore, but it was still a struggle at first to find anyone covered by my insurance who had any experience um, talking to people who are in non-monogamous relationships um, or who weren't kind of ascribing any problems I was having to the relationship model itself rather than the individuals. Um, and I think that happens for a lot of people and then they further self-isolate and it's, it's problematic. Therapists need to be trained on this because more and more people are doing it, you know, and it's, it's definitely psychologically tricky and, um, yeah, they have to deal with their own implicit biases around that as well, I think. And we can internally judge ourselves that way, too. Like I, you know, describe a scene in the book where I won't give away exactly what happens, but um, where I was physically violated and it was shortly after I had lost uh, my virginity with a woman and was sort of admitting to myself, yeah, you're fucking queer. And, you know, I had also been in this point in the relationship with my primary partner that was a very much a dom sub dynamic and was exploring all this non-monogamous stuff, going to parties, having threesomes, um, dating on my own. And when it happened, I remember basically looking at myself in the mirror as a hot mess and just kind of almost immediately being like, well, what did you expect, greedy slut? Like I had just so internalized the message that I didn't actually believe logically that this is just what happens when you step outside of norms, when you are quote unquote greedy and want to explore your sexuality um, in any adventurous way, you're going to end up assaulted somehow. You're going to end up <laughs> worse than that even. And I mean, I think that, Unfortunately, there is a high probability of those things happening to you the more risks you take, but that doesn't make it right. That doesn't mean it's, yeah, the, that's not what should be happening. That doesn't make it like the natural result. That's a, that's a symptom of um, messed up things in our society and people having a lot of trouble, especially with those who step outside of binaries, I think. And that's why I think we see higher rates of sexual assault and um, mental illness and drug abuse, eating disorders among bisexual women than you do uh, gay or straight women. And, you know, trans people have a much higher rate of sexual assault than cisgender people. And it's, I think... A lot of it has to do with just this discomfort of like, well, what, what fucking team are you on? You know, like, what are you? I can't put you in this box. And, and then we absorb the message that this is just the tax we have to pay 
for existing or living in our truth, right? Like, I'm saying, oh, what did you expect of greedy slut, like, being so reckless and adventurous, but really what I was also doing was just following my desire for the first time in a way that wasn't judging myself, I wasn't restricting myself because I was afraid of looking like a slut or something. I was actually just going for it for the first time in my life and exploring. And it wasn't greedy so much as honest, but apparently what my honest was was uh, considered reckless. I was uh, sexually assaulted once at a sex party and uh, that was a, a really painful situation because I think part of what made it hard was like that I didn't feel like I had the right to give myself compassion because there was some like reflexive thing in me that was like, well, of course this happened in this situation. We really like to think as a culture that we're beyond this like um, what are you wearing idea, but, but we're not. Uh, it's just that, you know, maybe the the standards for what is like you know acceptable behavior mm-hmm. you know wherein you you didn't like deserve what happened to you it's it's just moved a little further out but that kind of baseline judgment for who gets you know our sympathy or who you know deserves even their own compassion it's just it's just yeah. uh, moved a little yeah i'm so sorry that happened to you and sucks to hear because I I mean my experiences with parties were actually that they tended to be more consent focused than any space I've been in um but I I know I'm sure stuff like that happens all the time but like there were signs up and they really emphasized yes and for consent never asked for consent in a way that I didn't experience more of my um violations in that same realm always happened when I was you know alone in a room with a man um but I think, yeah, it happens to everyone, and no matter the situation, it's not okay to do something that someone doesn't consent to. It doesn't, it doesn't matter their skirt length. It doesn't matter their um, proclivities or uh, where they are, if they're at a sex party or an orgy. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's consent is consent. And I, I mean, it's been interesting for me with this book. You know, my friend said, it's like your book is a little bit the equivalent of like of wearing it like the argument of like oh she's wearing a short skirt so she's asking for it because I've I've already had yeah like sexual harassment um in interviews and stuff like that nothing like horrible but just men being creepy because it's like well you wrote about all this stuff so like you obviously are like down to talk about what kind of dicks you like and it's like well, I thought this was an interview. You know, it's obviously a fine line because I'm I'm willing to talk about a lot of stuff and I don't take it too hard. But it is interesting just to see how, like, oh, okay, I've written a book where now a lot of people are going to forever make a lot of assumptions about me and uh, feel like it's kind of like I'm a walking short skirt in some sense. I do get that uh, to one degree or another, being a comedian who right. talks about sex a lot. Um, although I don't, I don't think that stand up is, you know, as as honest or vulnerable as as what you wrote in your book, which is really, really raw. You're talking about 
you know, not just your, your sex life, but like, you know, all of the emotional dynamics around it in a way that is pretty no holds barred. And I really liked and appreciated it. I I found it super, super refreshing, especially in a culture where people are, are often pretty dishonest about sex. You know, even, even the way that we talk about something like consent, I feel like can be pretty reductive, you know, just like, Yes means yes, and no means no. And these are, of course, really important ideas that are true. And enthusiastic consent is a, is a great concept, but I often find that, you know, what's involved in, in situations where people are actually negotiating sexual activity together, you know, it's it requires empathy and it requires, you know, communicating on, on a much more comprehensive level than just yes or no. A lot of the time, you know, when there's situations where somebody is, you know, doing something that is unwanted, you know, like it could be, you know, just like an idiot dude or even not, right? Like he oftentimes, I think if you asked him, you know, truly believes that the situation is consensual and that his behavior is wanted and, and is just completely reading the situation wrong. And that's not an excuse for it in any way. That's just to say that, like, I think that the way that we're talking about how to establish consent needs to be a little bit deeper. While I definitely see the value in having like a pithy way of, of talking about consent in a way that feels really accessible and easy to understand, that's important. But a lot of the time, to be honest, it's, it's not that easy to understand. I think it would serve consent better to actually be honest about that and be honest about the level of communication that is actually required to determine, you know, are two people really on the same page about whatever sex they're considering having together? Right. And there's a really excellent book that came out last year called Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again by Catherine Angel that I really recommend that is all about this. And she is so fucking smart. And, um, you know, it's a more theoretical read in certain ways, but it's definitely not just for academics or anything like that. It's it's for people like us who want to think about these things and sort of uh, the complications of consent and desire in our uh, kind of quote-unquote post-MeToo world. And yeah, so she talks a lot about where the language of yes means yes and no means no short changes us and isn't covering all bases. And also, you know, if you're in a situation in a dynamic where you can't say no without being emotionally uh, punished somehow, like what, what good is your no, right? Or if you're in a situation where you're so distressed that you've dissociated um, and you're not saying no for that reason, even though you're clearly distressed, like then what what's happening? You're kind of, I think you need the person to have emotional attunement to you, basically. They have to care about you. And so then no means no and yes means yes as a, for, as a formula is kind of trying to make something work for when people are maybe super drunk or not very emotionally connected, but 
really the the path forward is going to be probably even when it's more casual sex that people are paying attention, you know, like they're not viewing another person as a prop or something. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I was, um, I was working on a book for a while about healthy masculinity. And one of the things that I got to about, you know, healthy masculinity around sex after talking to a bunch of people, you know, men, women for like a year, there really isn't any way out of the the mess that we find ourselves in without actually giving a shit about each other as human beings, even if it's in the like agape, just caring about someone because they're a human kind of way. Really no way to get around that one, you know? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Compassion is important. And uh, yeah, seeing, seeing the people you're with as fully formed, complex beings who are neither purely good nor purely bad um, is important too. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd agree with you. So on another note here, uh, Julia and I have at times on the show made fun of the idea that if more people do polyamory, that it will bring about the end of capitalism. <laughs> and more broadly, there there is this idea that the type of sex that we have or the type of relationships that we have is political. And I don't personally agree with that. I think that sex is sex and politics is politics. And the end of capitalism will come maybe one day from organizing the working class. I do think that it would be disingenuous to say that there's absolutely nothing political about sexuality. So I'm kind of wondering where you fall. Well, I don't think the that non-monogamy is going to bring about, you know, the end of capitalism, but I do think it's a challenge to certain, um, well, mostly like patriarchal white supremacy culture and capitalistic mentalities um, are all wrapped up together, right? And it is a, a challenge to conventional structures, specifically that women's bodies and reproduction are. Um, potentially male property to manage. I think you see in the book very clearly of it depends how you practice it, right? Like here I am practicing non-monogamy, but in the book it's this very um, dom-sub where the man is dominant and uh, very much upholding all those values and I'm kind of falling more and more under his control. So there's definitely nothing necessarily inherently um, like, woof, you're liberated or something. No, it can, it can be just as much steeped in all of those systems. But I certainly have seen for some people, like in the book, my friend Aisha, who says, you know, after they got divorced, that they, they were like, they decided like no one gets to give, like have them in any way beyond what they decide to give them to hold. And that to them, that feels safer. That feels much better to be like, I'm not anyone's property and I'm not going to promise to be uh, in any way. And, you know, they said, I asked them like, well, if, if there's kind of all these connections, do you think between, you know, monogamy and capitalism, does that mean monogamy is inherently oppressive? 
And Aisha said, no, I don't think that monogamy that's based on two people just always choosing one another over other people, no matter what, is a conscious choice, is uh, inherently oppressed at all. I'm super here for that. But it is political to refuse conscription to certain kinds of living because things like people gaining more civil protections and benefits for being married, for example. And, you know, monogamy is implied in that. And also for a long time, it was heterosexuality was implied, was necessary for that. All these kinds of conditions we place around, okay, here's how you're more likely to be able to buy a house. Here's how you're going to be more respected by society. Here's your tax benefits, whatever it may be. Yeah, it's, it's political in the same way that if you don't have children, like that's also in its own way a political choice too. So I think I, to me, the personal is political. I'm just not under any illusions that it's going to like organize everyone. But I, I do think that a lot of change happens on the interpersonal level. Um, for sure. I agree with you. Uh, a lot of the non-monogamous relationships I've been in with men have been pretty fucking sexist. And a lot of the monogamous relationships I've been in with men have been pretty fucking sexist. No, for yeah. myself, I'm not really sure if there's any way out of these like sexist, heteronormative patterns, <laughs> except on a really, really, really super granular level between two individuals where both people are really open to hearing feedback and working together. I mean, I've dated some of the wokest, most online feminist motherfuckers all of all time. And, you know, I was in the kitchen doing their dishes so that they had more time to uh, post that feminist content. And, you know, it, it, the argument can be made, oh, okay, you know, you just chose the wrong partners. But I've also had some really great partners. And I've found that, you know, those patterns were still very much operating in our relationships. There can be a level of cluelessness that's not malicious at all. I don't know. It's, it's complicated. It is. It is. It's very hard to uh, untangle our conditioning and these systems and relationship with each other. I mean, I think we see the same thing with, you know, a bunch of white people waking up to the fact that they're racist, even though they think they're liberal and, and you know, don't see color or something like that. But the realization um, that, like, yeah, if you're not actively anti-racist, you are participating in racism. You're part of white supremacy culture because you're benefiting off of it if you're white. And um, it takes an acknowledgement of that and also like an, a, a deliberate acting in a different direction, acting in relation to other people, being able to listen. And I think it's similar for men um, who've been raised under patriarchy, they're suffering under these systems too, maybe not as much as women, but certainly I've seen a lot of suffering, particularly emotional in terms of what's repressed, what's not ever developed in the first place. And so, yeah, of course, I think often we're more attuned to these things than we are in the same way that, um, you know, black people in this country are more attuned than white people to like how racism functions. And it's not really their job to educate us about it, just like it's probably not women's job to educate men about it. But when we're in relationship, hopefully 
People try to make a deliberate effort to learn and to ask questions and to see what they can do to actively um, kind of see what parts of the system should be left behind, which gender norms and social norms and racial norms and all these things are not serving anyone. I agree. And, you know, there can be this thing where there's people who are like, I'm, I'm a feminist man or I'm a socialist man, I'm a progressive man, and can serve to add another layer of obfuscation to it because it's like, oh, well, I'm a feminist or a socialist or progressive or whatever, so I could never be a person that has these mm-hmm. sexist expectations of my partner. Right. And I want to say that politics don't matter because I would never fucking date a Trump supporter or something. And if you, you know, do have those politics, you probably have views of gender that I would find absolutely abhorrent. But I would say of a lot of people, including myself at times, that there can be a disconnect between what our political ideals are and, you know, how, how we're actually living our lives, um, you know, even even with the best of intentions. Well, this has been a really great conversation. And, you know, we're going to wrap up here in a few minutes. But before we do wrap up, I want to talk to you for a moment about a topic which is getting a lot of attention and, you know, perhaps at risk of becoming hack. But I I do want to address it anyway because I, I think it's very important. You wrote a lot in this book about gaslighting. And in a way, I'm so sick of this topic and I'm so sick of the discourse around it. But in another way, I also really wish that people knew more about what gaslighting is so that they would be able to, you know, see if it's happening in a a relationship that they're in. I have definitely been in relationships where this happens. And I think that it it can be a, a somewhat common dynamic between men and women. And I, I guess, you know, with aside from like the pervasive and reductive discourse about it online, what do you wish that people knew about gaslighting? Oh, God. Yeah. Read the book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just that it's a term that's thrown around a lot, but when it's serious um, in a relationship, it is a serious form of emotional abuse often. And gaslighting is not the same thing as disagreement. It's not like, oh, you're disagreeing with me or we're having an argument, you're gaslighting me. Like it shouldn't be just thrown around willy-nilly probably till it doesn't have any meaning. Gaslighting is manipulating someone by psychological means into questioning their sanity. Um, And it tends to follow very specific patterns of speech, which I try to really break down because I have the bizarre record of exactly the dance and dynamic, how it works, um, or at least how it worked in that relationship, because I began recording our conversations and arguments with his consent, um, because I was ostensibly thinking about working on a book about non-monogamy, but as the years passed and I kept being told, you're remembering things wrong. No, that's not what I said. You're misinterpreting reality. You know, you're, you're wrong. You're wrong about everything. You're not, you can't remember things. I was like, all right, I better have some sort of solid record because I don't trust my own mind anymore. I certainly don't trust that I would ever be able to 
make sense of what's happening. And it gave me a sense of some control or some feeling that like maybe I would get out of this situation or come through the other side one day and be able to retrace my steps as a writer and reporter and understand what the fuck was happening. How did I go from being someone who was relatively confident and self-assured in her own judgment and intelligence to eventually feeling like I had, I had let someone else take over my mind. Like his voice was the strongest voice inside my head. I didn't, I trusted his judgment more than my own. Um, and what's more than that, I just sort of had lost all sense of my own feelings being valid because I was told they were irrational and I shouldn't be having them. And if I could just basically see things more his way, that I would be happy. Um, and I kept trying to achieve that goalpost. And then when I thought I did, the goalpost would move, which is also very common. So I really try to show in often verbatim words exactly how that dynamic works because even as I knew I was in the middle of something really problematic I also found a lot of the discourse around um, emotional abuse or gaslighting to it felt like I don't want to be one of those people like I, I felt like I'm not a victim I'm more of aware of the fact that he's manipulating me than he appears to be um, he's still really good at it, but it didn't feel like a conscious thing often on his part. It felt like he just thought he was always right and he needed to tell me and convince me why by any means necessary. And he was very persuasive. Yeah, that's an interesting point that stood out to me that gaslighting doesn't have to be intentional it can also just be that somebody is so positive they are right that they're truly unwilling to consider that any perspective outside of their own could be valid or that another person could even be experiencing reality differently even if of course two perspectives right. in an intimate relationship especially can be valid and i think all of us have been guilty of doing some of this in an argument at some point um, just like all of us having moments been probably like verbally abusive uh, based on the definition in terms of like insulting someone in a fight or, you know, kind of like undermining their confidence in a really mean way. But it's when these things become systemic patterns um, and really deeper and deeper grooves that it becomes really dangerous to to both people. And that's what I try to show. Like I just... I don't think these are fixed identities or states. Like some of the labels are useful in terms of pointing out what the behavior is. But I think that I exhibited harmful behaviors as well that I point out. And I think that different people given different dynamics, different things come out. And so there needs to be a sense of uh, responsibility, but also I think compassion that we look into, well, what is driving people who are doing this? You know, what's the suffering behind that? What's happening with them psychologically as well? And can we provide a path forward where we're not excusing bad behavior or abusive behavior, but we're also not saying, I recognize this behavior and therefore this is who you are forever. 
I think that, you know, one thing that can kind of keep people in abusive relationships is that, you know, if you're in an abusive relationship, you're probably not going to act great either. There can be, you know, instances where you're going to yell back. I mean, if you're you're in an abusive relationship, you're not going to be at your best. And I think a lot of the people that are in abusive relationships, you know, will kind of look at the situation they're in and, you know, sort of be examining it and, and sort of conclude that it's a lot more mutual than it really is when it's actually important to look at how power is working in the relationship. Mm-hmm. I think where compassion yeah. comes in is, yeah, all human beings deserve compassion, but that doesn't mean that you have to accept treatment that makes you feel bad about yourself. You know, I want to end us on an optimistic note here. And I do think that your book is optimistic. You got out of an emotionally abusive relationship and, you know, you did not give up on your own joy. You're still committed to your own sexual pleasure and your own sense of adventure, your emotional growth, your own authenticity. For listeners who may have been in a situation like this, what are some of the things that were helpful to you in reconnecting with your own sense of joy, innocence, fun? Oh, I love this question. Thank you for asking that and and for all the nice things you just said. It really means so much to me. Um, I think the big turning point for me was finally establishing a meditation practice was very important especially because I lost so much trust in my own sanity and mind, right, that I sort of needed to come back to myself and to even just separate the voices that were in there, his voice from my own. Um, And so that was essential. I began just meditating for 10 minutes every morning, looking at a candle flame, And for me, the effects were very uh, profound, just even just doing that. Um, But I also added in other practices that I've learned from listening to Tara Brock, who is also really important to my healing. She's an awesome psychologist and Buddhist teacher who gets, uh, has a podcast and I guess YouTube channel. And she's just fucking awesome. Like she's very wonderful and wise and has talks on every kind of topic. So I was just listening to so much of her and so much of it was very practical, kind of almost cognitive behavioral stuff based in research. Um, but not as like a mindfulness hack so you can be more productive at work, but just like mindfulness ideas so that you're not like constantly anxious all the time. And yeah, it's not about fixing. It's just about, you know, yeah. being able to experience joy in joy, your life and exactly. take your experiences and get some wisdom from them. I mean, these things would have been important in, exactly. in every other culture that's not our uh, contemporary incarnation of capitalism. Well, I love that. I am definitely inspired to incorporate some more of these practices into my life, uh, including just petting my little animals more. (laughs) So where can people find your book? Yeah, they can find it wherever books are sold online at their local bookstore. Um, Yeah. Open and uncensored memoir of love, liberation, non-monogamy. There's also an audio book I narrated, which is fun. So if you want to hear exactly how I intended the jokes to land (laughs) and my man voice, you can hear that. 
Um, and yeah, follow me on Twitter and Instagram if you want. I post most updates there. It's just my name, Rachel Krantz, on both platforms. And feel free to reach out if anything's been meaningful to you. It really helps to hear from people um, who appreciate or have been affected by it in some way, even if it's just this conversation, you know, as some of the more uh, scary moments are coming up and potential trolling and that sort of thing. It just really helps to feel like I have this army of love behind me. So I always love hearing from people. Well, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And again, really great book. Listeners, you will love this book and please follow Rachel on social media. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. Walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. Your this land. land is your land.